Recorded live. Hello. This is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, September 26, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today is, we are going to present part six of our series, The Protocols of Satan. This will be the final um, part in, in my assertion and attempts to prove that the protocols are certainly legitimate writings, that the, any claims of there being a forgery are simply the lies of the Jews in order to detract attention from the program outlined in the protocols themselves, a program which Henry Ford had seen 90 years ago as already unfolding before our very eyes. The Jews, able to convince most of the Western world through their power to media, which in fact the protocols themselves claim that its authors have, convince the Western world that the protocols are a forgery while they were being perpetrated right under our noses. And now, for the most part, all is said and done. We live in a world of Jewish supremacism. We have few independent outlets of thought and speech left where we can remain unmolested. For now, these pockets of the Internet are one of them. I don't know how long that's going to last. In our last segment of the Protocols of Satan, we had presented three articles from the London Times, which were presumably written by Philip Graves and had been published on consecutive dates in August of 1921. In part three of this series, we had quoted the Russian historians Lev Aronov, Hedrick Baran, and Dmitry Zubarev. I'm sorry who in their 2009 article entitled Princess Catherine Rodziwill and the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the hoax as a lifestyle, had written the following in reference to these Philip Graves articles. A few months later, statements by Catherine Rodziwill, a few months after the protocols were first published in English, and Count Duchela, become much less important in the debate about the protocols. In the summer of 1921, the British journalist Philip Graves in Constantinople buys from a Russian emigrant, Mr. H, in Russian, in English it would be Mr. X, right? A publication of the 19th century in which it is easily discovered when compared with the text of the protocols that in the truest sense it is the basis for the creation of an anti-Semitic document. This edition, Dialogue in Hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu, or Machiavelli's Politics in the 19th Century, published in 1864, was directed against the Second Empire of Napoleon III. A political satire by Maurice Jolie, 
This direct evidence of the protocols being a forgery, though it still, and they're writing in 2009, though it still remains unconvincing for fans of conspiracy theories, was published in the newspaper The Times. And the issue's from 16th to 18th August 1921 and upstaged the previous performances, meaning that the claim by Philip Graves that the protocols were a forgery from the book of Maurice Jolie had upstaged the previous attempts to discredit the protocols put forth by the Jews in the forms of Catherine Rodswell and Comte or Count Duchela. We stated at the time that we do not believe that the sudden discovery by Philip Graves of the book by Jolie, the dialogue in hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu, and the contention that it must have been the source for the protocols was coincidental or even an accident. We rather believe that Jewry needed another story by which to discredit the protocols, and that Rodziwill and Dushela served their purpose as useful distractions until something better and more substantial could be devised. Therefore, the Jolie book was suddenly discovered at this time because Jewry needed it, and whether it was legitimately Jolie's work or not is immaterial, although we shall not question it in this regard, we still think that Jolie had copied a lot of the material from other sources, sources that were the same as the origins of the protocols. So we shall discuss, and this is what we had written in part three, so we shall discuss a lengthy discussion, we shall present a lengthy discussion in order to determine if the Jolie material is really the final proof against any claims for the legitimacy of the protocols. That was our original intention. We have already moved very far in the direction of that, I believe, with our presentations of Nesto Webster's opinions in part four of the series. And in its fulfillment, this will be the final segment of that promised discussion. We began this discussion of the Jolie book and the protocols by presenting material from Appendix 2 of the book Secret Societies and Subversive Movements by Nesto Webster, which was evidently first published in 1924. When we first read of the Jolie book in relation to the protocols, we concluded that both works must have come from the same source rather than the protocols having been taken from Jolie. Nesta Webster helped us to vindicate that position. In all honesty, the opinions put forth by the Russian historians, Aronov, Baron, and Zubarev, and the assertions of Philip Graves may be accepted if it is taken for granted that the protocols did not come into existence until after 1864, but only upon the basis that the Dialogue of Jolie and the Protocols are the only literature of the 19th century which contain such ideas. Nesta Webster had also shown that 
in a June 12, 1920 article in a publication called The Spectator, a certain Mr. Lucian Wolfe had declared that the protocols were a forgery based upon a few parallels found in another political work of the period, Herman Goetsch's Biarritz, which was a novel published in 1868, a political novel, and that upon that basis, Wolf made the declaration that Nihilus followed this pamphlet very closely. Well, evidently, this claim did not stick in relation to Biarritz, but it is the same claim that Graves had made a year later for the Protocols and Jolie's Dialogue, after which the Goja book was also claimed to have been a plagiarism of the Dialogue. Nestor Webster accepted the that the protocols did indeed have many parallels similar to the dialogue of Jolie, and also admitted those which were found in Goethe's Biarritz. But Nestor Webster did not jump to the conclusion reached by Graves, or more recently by Aronov, Baron, and Zubarev, and a hundred commentators in between. Rather, Nestor Webster had shown that there were also many passages of the protocols which were just as similar to the writings of the members of the Illuminati and Adam Weishaupt, the members of the Hot Vent Romaine, a secret society in Italy, and notably Piccolo Tigre, to the writings of the Alliance Sociale Democratique, and Mikhail Bakunin, to the writings of the Jewish socialist Karl Marx, and the Marxist Bolshevik Vladimir Lenin, as well as others of those same persuasions. Therefore, the opinions that the protocols are a mere plagiarism of Jolie, put forth by Aronov, Baron, Zubarev, and originally asserted by Philip Graves, cannot be accepted, because the dialogue of Jolie and the protocols are not the only literature of the 19th century which contains such similar ideas. Rather, all of these works together reflect a body of political thought which was being perpetuated in the Masonic lodges and secret societies of 18th and 19th century Europe. All of the men who perpetuated them have connections to these Masonic lodges or to the Illuminati or to other so-called secret societies. In that light, it must be understood that the protocols are real. And those who claim they are a forgery, clowns like David Duke, are basing their claims only on a small glimpse of the entire picture. We have seen Nestor Webster admit that there is indeed some material in the protocols which is practically identical to passages from Maurice Jolie's dialogue. 
In his Times articles, Philip Graves had asserted that there are scores of other parallels between the books. Fully 50 paragraphs in the protocols are simply paraphrases of passages in the dialogues. To this we replied, however, that material is only a small part of the total material in the protocols, and most of the material in the protocols is not found in the Jolie book in any form. In turn, most of the material in the Jolie book is not found in the protocols in any form. Webster describes some of the remaining material in the protocols as prophetic, which indeed it seems to have been, and she explained that it could not be accounted for if the protocols were a mere forgery on the part of Sergei Nihilus or anyone else. While we cannot take the time to assess and compare, the complete body of both quite lengthy works on our own, at least on time for this program, we will take it for granted that perhaps Graves is correct about the quote-unquote 50 paragraphs. We will also take it for granted that the 10 paragraphs which Graves had included in his own articles presented in the last segment of this series. Showing parallels between the protocols and Jolie's dialogue are accurate and represent the most striking resemblances. We would expect Graves to publish the paragraphs with the strongest resemblances since he compared only 10 of the alleged 50 in his article and sought to make a strong case for his claims. However, we did a brief survey of the copy of the text of the protocols, which we have posted at the Mein Kampf project at Christogenia, and we found that the 24 chapters into which the protocols are organized contain a total of 291 sections. Many of the sections are only a single paragraph, some only a few sentences. But some of the sections contain several paragraphs. But even if, on average, each section contained two paragraphs, then Graves' 50 paragraphs would not amount to more than 10% of the volume of the protocols. And in reality, the figure is even much less than that. But here... I am going to compare a portion of Jolie's first dialogue with a portion of the first protocol. I want to do this to show how wrong, how the wrong conclusion can be reached based on a partial understanding of a document or on a partial presentation of a document which is being made in order to support a particular agenda. We may read in the first dialogue the words attributed to the Machiavelli character in Jolie's book, where he states, political liberty is only a relative idea. And then we may read similar words in the first protocol, where it says, political freedom is an idea, but not a fact. And some of us may be convinced of a striking similarity. But here is a lengthier part of the passage in question from the dialogue. 
and the Machiavelli character is portrayed as having said, what restrains the devouring animals that one calls men? At the origin of society, there was brutal and unchecked force. Later, it was the law, that is to say, force still, ruled by forms. You have consulted all the sources of history, Everywhere, force appears before rights. Political liberty is only a relative idea. The necessity to live is what dominates the states as well as individuals. In certain European latitudes, there are people incapable of moderation in the exercise of liberty. If liberty is extended there, it becomes license. Civil or social war occurs and the state is lost. Either it is divided into factions and dismembered by the effect of its own convulsions, or its divisions render it prey to foreigners. In such conditions, people prefer despotism to anarchy. Are they wrong? And that's the end of the citation from the words attributed to Machiavelli. And now here is a lengthier portion of the passage in question from the Protocols. In the beginnings of the structure of society, they were subjected to brutal and blind force, after words to law, which is the same force, only disguised. I draw the conclusion that by law of nature, right lies in force. Political freedom is an idea, but not a fact. This idea, one must know how to apply whenever it appears necessary with this bait of an idea to attract the masses of the people to one's party for the purpose of crushing another who is in authority. This task is rendered easier if the opponent has himself been infected with the idea of freedom, so-called liberalism, and for the sake of an idea is willing to yield some of his power. It is precisely here that the triumph of our theory appears. The slackened reins of government are immediately, by the law of life, cut up and gathered together by a new hand, because the blind might of the nation cannot for one single day exist without guidance, and the new authority merely fits into the place of the old, already weakened by liberalism. Now, here it is obvious that the writer of the Protocols and Jolie's Machiavelli character in the dialogues are expressing the same basic political philosophy of might and power in relation to law and share many of the same sentiments expressed in similar terms. However, while the philosophies are similar, the development of the ideas does not share the same direction, and both are clearly completed in a manner which is independent one of the other. This is because in European nations of this time, these same ideas had been wrestled with by political philosophers for a hundred years or two, and Machiavelli represents one side of the political spectrum while Montesquieu represents the other. The liberalism advocated by Montesquieu was the nemesis of Machiavelli and despised by the authors of the Protocols, but the authors of the Protocols sought to use it only in order to 
undermine Christendom and to introduce their own Machiavellian tyranny. We see these same things belabored in the mind of Thomas Jefferson who was stricken with that liberalism that the protocols despised, who was an admirer and a follower of Montesquieu. The following is from a webpage labeled The Jeffersonian Perspective, which bills itself as a commentary on today's social and political issues based on the writings of Thomas Jefferson. And it says, in selecting excerpts from Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws, from those copied by Jefferson in his commonplace book, there appeared an interesting difference on the question of liberty that throws light on Jefferson's view. He had copied the following passage from Montesquieu, from Book 11, Chapter 3. Political liberty does not consist in an unlimited freedom, in governments, that is, in societies directed by laws. Liberty can consist only in the power of doing what we ought to will, and in not being constrained to do what we ought not to will. So far, so good. And I'm still quoting the website. This certainly isn't my commentary. So far, so good. Jefferson probably would have agreed with that statement, contingent only on one, how one defines what we ought to will and what we ought not to will, as we soon shall see. But Montesquieu goes further, and here is where he and Jefferson part company. Montesquieu says, we must have continually present in our minds the difference between independence and liberty. Liberty is a right of doing whatever the laws permit, and if a citizen could do what they forbid, he would no longer be possessed of liberty, because all his fellow citizens would have the same power. Now contrast that with Jefferson's statements on the limits of liberty. Of liberty, I would say that, in the whole plenitude of its extent, it is unobstructed action according to our will. But rightful liberty is unobstructed action according to our will within limits drawn around us by the equal rights of others. I do not add within the limits of the law, because law is often but the tyrant's will, and always so when it violates the right of an individual. Thomas Jefferson in a letter to Tiffany, 1819. Both Jefferson and Montesquieu agree that the rightful political liberty is not unlimited freedom, but Montesquieu defines the limits on liberty in terms of established law, whereas Jefferson defines those limits in terms of the equal rights of others, noting that the limits of the law cannot be taken as a standard because law is often but the tyrant's will, and always so when it violates the right of an individual. To Jefferson, the overriding consideration is the equal rights of individuals. Montesquieu's weaker position is the danger of anarchy that comes from being able to do what law forbids. Jefferson founds his view of the limits of liberty not on a need for order in a society, but on the fundamental notion that individuals individuals possess inherent and inalienable rights, and that it is the fact that all the other individuals possess those same rights that places the only rightful curb on those rights. Now, of course, being 
true God-fearing Christians. We would disagree with all of this, with Jefferson, with Montesquieu, with Machiavelli. They all go into the trash can. But these were the political arguments of the day. Now, Jefferson evidently cited his work and gave Montesquieu credit where he had quoted him. But there are many writings from the same period which reflect either Machiavelli or Montesquieu, which are not so well cited, but that does not make them forgeries. It only means that the various writers had the same original inspiration. That is what must be true of the protocols and the Machiavelli character portrayed by Jolie in his dialogues because the Machiavelli character and the protocols are precisely the opposite. They are supporting government through tyranny where Jefferson and Montesquieu were liberals. And while it was not the plan of the Machiavelli character in Jolie's dialogue, so far as I have seen, it was the plan of the protocols to use liberalism in order to completely subvert it. So it only means that the various writers had the same original inspiration. That is what must be true of the protocols and the Machiavelli character portrayed by Jolie in his dialogues, as we have asserted before, and as we have seen Nesta Webster illustrate at length. Therefore, where Graves concluded at the end of his third article that the protocols are largely a paraphrase of the book here provisionally called the Geneva Dialogues, and that the protocols were, as he says, paraphrased very hastily and carelessly. He is clearly lying. That is because even if one tossed out all of Graves' 50 paragraphs, the protocols would still represent a body of political thought many times greater in size than the 50 paragraphs alone, which was developed independently of Jolie's dialogue. Another of the conclusions made by Graves was that they were designed to foster the belief among Russian conservatives, and especially in court circles, that the prime cause of discontent among the politically-minded elements in Russia was not the repressive policy of the bureaucracy, but a worldwide Jewish conspiracy. And this, too, is discredited by the much earlier testimony of Nihilus that he himself had brought the protocols to the attention of the Grand Duke, Sergei Alexandrovich, but was only to Alexandrovich, I'm sorry, but was only told that it was too late to act on them, which were virtually the same words he had also attested the hearing from Sukhotin when the protocols were first entrusted to him.
We also explained that the protocols were first published in Russian in a newspaper series in 1903, but Russian conservatives were not specifically acting against Jews after that time. And furthermore, we explained that Nihilus first attempted in 1905 to have the protocols published as a smaller standalone book, and the Russian censors would not permit him for fear of undue reprisals against supposedly innocent Jews. So, knowing this, the conjecture of Philip Graves in his conclusion to his articles disintegrates. That leaves one final conclusion to Graves' list, where he also conjectured concerning the origin of the protocols. That, and he said that such portions of the protocols, as were not derived from the Geneva Dialogues, were probably supplied by the Akrana, which organization very possibly obtained them from the many Jews it employed to spy on they're co-religionists. Now we must remember, assessing this statement, that this is Graves' own conjecture, and making it, he is basically admitting to his own belief that whatever material in the protocols did not come from the Jolie dialogue must nevertheless have come from the Jews. One listener to our last segment, when we first made that conclusion, had asked in relation to this, couldn't this be interpreted as Graves' inferring that the Jews employed by the Akrana were traitors to their own, and as such probably falsified their reports to the Akrana in order to paint Jews in a bad light? Now, the Jews employed by the Akrana may have been traitors, but that is immaterial since it still stands that Graves' conjecture admits his own belief, no matter the motives for it, that the material in the protocols had nevertheless come from Jews, regardless of the pretense. In other words, Graves' Graves conjectures the entire scenario, but any interpretation of it still leaves it evident that Graves admitted that the materials in the protocols did indeed originate with Jews and for whatever reasons the Jews may have made them. The Graves article had declared through the mouth of the mysterious Mr. X in reference to Jolie's dialogue. Read this book through, and you will find irrefutable proof that the protocols of the learned elders of Zion is a plagiarism. However, what we have found in turn is that the protocols are true, and for all the reasons which we have already explained, but there is much more in that regard which can be discussed. Researching for this series, I found a lengthy article, a very lengthy article, called The Protocols of Jolie, which at first glance I thought actually upheld the notion set forth by Philip Graves. So when I finished the presentation of the Bergmeister booklet in the earlier segments of the series, and the claims of Will and Count Duchela, I came around to address the contentions of Graves concerning the protocols, 
At this point, I went back to the protocols of Jolie. But rather than a support of Graves, what I found was a thorough refutation of Graves made from a perspective which was very much different than my own. And while I had come to my conclusions independently, I had nevertheless developed this refutation of Graves much more fully with help from Nesta Webster. However, the refutation of Graves in the Protocols of Jolie does not even mention Nesta Webster, and it only mentions secret societies where they are treated in the source materials the protocols or the dialogues themselves. So it may be worth presenting a few of the ideas here which are found in the article, The Protocols of Jolie. Now, this article, copied to a word processor document, is in 12-point type is about 160 pages. So by no means can we even scratch the surface on all that it contains. But its initial premise is interesting and may add to what we may esteem as an already thorough refutation of Philip Graves and the wrong-headed idea that the protocols are a mere forgery. So we will quote at length from the protocols of Jolie and add some commentary and our own our own conclusions when we come to the end of what we're quoting. Anyone who starts looking into the protocols of the meetings of the learned elders of Zion will frequently encounter the old chestnut about a hoax or a forgery. When Philip Graves made the allegation in 1921, Long before the days of the Internet and all the pages detailing the various logical fallacies, his target audience had never heard of a circular argument or a non-sequitur. Debunking graves is as easy as falling off a log. Proponents of the forgery theory have an argument that runs like this. One. Several passages within the Protocols of Zeon were plagiarized from a previous work, Maurice Scholey's The Dialogue in Hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu. Two, only evil, racist, hate-filled anti-Semites could have resorted to plagiarism, since Jews are as innocent as newborn lambs. And that's a little bit of exaggeration, but that is what is implied. And three, this proves that evil, racist, hate-filled anti-Semites fabricated the Protocols of Zeon, and the work is a fraud, a forgery, and a hoax. And they go on to postulate that the forgery theorists will frequently not even bother to include part two by going from their premise, one, that the Protocols are a forgery, directly to their conclusion, three, that therefore they must have been forged by anti-Semites, their argument becomes a non-sequitur. And of course, a non-sequitur is a conclusion or statement that does not logically follow from the previous argument or statement. <coughs> Excuse me. The conclusion, they say, 
does not follow the premise. In order to get from one to three, they must include other postulates, such as number two. And, and that's where they argue that only evil, racist, hate-filled anti-Semites could have resorted to this plagiarism. And they say that although premise one is true, premise two and conclusion three are both false. And premise one is true. Not that the protocols are a forgery, but that the protocols contain passages which may have been forged from parts of Jolie's dialogue. Clearly, the hypothetical anti-Semites alleged by Jews to have authored the protocols with the help of a bit of plagiarism do not have a monopoly on copying other people's work. Jewish supremacists who were plotting world conquest had more motives for plagiarism than the alleged anti-Semites. Both would have saved time and effort. Jewish supremacists also had a powerful motive in that if the protocols was discovered, they would be able to blame anti-Semites citing the forgery charge as their proof. Ultimately, as we shall see, the decision to have the protocol writers deliberately copy previous works in such a way that a number of parallel passages were strikingly obvious was taken by Alphonse de Rothschild. His inspiration for this contingency plan of crying forgery in the event of discovery can be traced to the fact that around 1889, at the time of his Protocols project, he discovered that merchants from countries such as Russia were bottling cheap wine and selling it with Lafitte Rothschild labels on the bottles. Thus, with the pirates forging Rothschild's labels, the concept of forgery would have been playing on his mind. And whatever his views were on Russians, the experience would hardly have changed them for the better. Now, this writer is conjecturing a lot in this scenario concerning the Rothschilds, but his arguments that the protocols are a forgery, his arguments against the claims that the protocols are a forgery are certainly valid. Now, this is a very long document, and he develops the proofs of the fulfillment of the protocols and how they have indeed been employed and how the central bankers and particularly the Rothschild family has been have been the primary beneficiaries of the fulfillment of the protocols and the plan that they lay out. And based on that evidence, along with some other things, the writer of the Protocols of Jolie proves by those circumstances in his mind, and the reader will have to make up his own mind, that Rothschilds are primarily responsible for the creation 
of the protocols. Now, I will comment on that at my own conclusion this evening. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I don't reject it outright for various reasons. We'll continue with our article. When the protocol deniers put up their non-sequitur argument and don't explicitly state number two, that only evil, racist, hateful Semites could have resorted, anti-Semites could have resorted to plagiarism, they are aware that many of their dupes will implicitly assume number two, given how the mainstream media has conditioned many people to perceive Jews and anti-Semites. Alternatively, if they do include number two, they have inserted a false postulate, and thus their argument is circular. They have started out with their desired conclusion and have set up a false proposition in order to obtain their conclusion. Now they're going to give their own refutation of Philip Graves's for conclusions to his articles that claim that the protocol, protocols are a forgery. And the article says, Philip Graves states four conclusions as his evidence of forgery. One, the protocols are largely a paraphrase of the dialogue in hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu, or as Graves calls it, the Geneva Dialogues. As shown above, that is not evidence of forgery. Moreover, Graves is forced to concede that there is no evidence as to how the Geneva Dialogues reached Russia, which is consistent with the protocols originating somewhere other than Russia. How odd is it that when the Russians are supposed to be forging a document, Instead of Russians in Russia writing it in Russian, it is supposed to be Russians in Paris writing it in French, according to the forgery proponent's own conspiracy theory. And that is true. That was the claim of Catherine Rosewill. That was the claim of Count Dushela. Those people have been absolutely discredited, but they claimed that the Russians were in Paris forging the protocols in French and then bringing them to Russia and translating them, which is an incredible theory. And for that reason, our author here would also find it to be discreditable. Two, the protocols served as a weapon against the Russian liberals. Again, this is not evidence of forgery, since the protocols would have served as a political weapon irrespective of who authored them. In order for forged protocols to be as useful to the Russian conservatives as the genuine article, the forger would need to do an excellent job. And forgery proponents contend that the easily spotted parallel passages occurred as the result of a rush job, as opposed to a deliberate planting of evidence that was intended to be so obvious that it could hardly be missed in the event of the protocol's discovery. And that is true that the purposeful plagiarism of practically identical paragraphs from Jolie's dialogues and there are several, would 
would be awfully sloppy work if indeed the protocols were a purposeful forgery perpetrated by the enemies of those who are said to have created them. The premise of the Protocols of Jolie amounts to this, that the Rothschilds had been responsible for having had the protocols written, and that verbatim passages from Jolie's dialogues were intentionally included, so that if the protocols were discovered, they could make the claim of forgery, which they did. In any event, the included passages reflecting the philosophy of Machiavelli also agreed with the political philosophy espoused by the protocols. But this is what our article's author is asserting, that the Rothschilds created the protocols and purposely copied passages from Jolie verbatim so that if the protocols were discovered, they could claim that they were a forgery. Three, our author addressing the third Philip Graves' conclusion. The protocols were paraphrased very hastily and carelessly. Again, if the paraphrasing was sloppy, that doesn't prove who did it. However, Jewish supremacists would be aware that the work might be discovered and would plan accordingly. They would have a powerful motive to do a hasty job of paraphrasing so that the plagiarism would be detected within two or three decades, would be more evident upon discovery, and anti-Semites could be blamed for the forgery. Any hypothetical anti-Semites would have more motive to do a good job so that their fraud might remain undetected and the protocols would continue to serve a political purpose. And four, where the protocols are not derived from the Geneva Dialogues, they were probably supplied by the Akrana. This is simply wishful thinking and baseless speculation on the part of graves. As we shall see, the Akranis archives were saved, shipped to the United States, and opened in 1957. And there was zero evidence of a plot to forge the protocols. Moreover, there is ample evidence that the Akrana did not create the protocols. Here the article gives long examples of Jews caught in acts of forgery, ostensibly in order to show that Jews commit forgery on a regular basis. To, do, to these, we would want to add the many Jewish forgeries committed at Alexandria, where a plethora of so-called Christian documents were created, known generally as the Gnostic Gospels and related writings. They, too, were forgeries by Alexandrian Jews. We're going to um, present some of these accounts of forgery from our author of the Protocols of Jolie in order to um, support the point that he is making as he concludes this section of his document. And he says, amusingly, the former French chief rabbi, Giles Bernheim, an Ashkenazi Jew, was recently exposed as a plagiarist who lied about his credentials. The Jewish Daily Forward tells of how Bernheim's 
2011 book, 40 Jewish Meditations, was found to have long passages that repeated, word for word, an earlier book by the eminent philosopher Jean-Francois Lyotard. Bernheim first attempted to invert the accusations, blaming Lyotard, who died in 1998, for having plagiarized one of Bernheim's earlier works. This claim soon fell apart, and then Bernheim tried to blame a research assistant. But it gets even better. Bernheim was found to have plagiarized several other people, including Eli Wiesel. And then it turned out that Bernheim was not the intellectual that he was purported to be. He claimed to have a doctorate in philosophy, but had never finished his degree. The second case. The actor, Shia Leboeuf, born to a Jewish mother, which, according to Jews, makes him a Jew, whatever he might believe, has gotten himself into a few scrapes. In February 2005, he rammed his car into the back of a neighbor's car, rather than wait a minute for the neighbor to finish chatting to his girlfriend and move out of the way, and later appeared at the neighbor's front door waving a kitchen knife. A little later, at the age of 19, LeBouf went to a neighbor's apartment with a knife to confront him for insulting his mother, taking a friend for backup. They were seen off by the guy and six of his friends. LeBouf got into a fight and threatened to pull a knife in Vancouver in 2011, and in 2014, headbutted a man after an argument in a London pub. But it gets better. LeBouf proved to be quite a plagiarist. His short film... HowardCantor.com, that's actually the name of the film, you can look it up, released in December 2013, was found to have close similarities with the 2007 comic film by Dan Close, including an identical opening monologue. When LeBouf apologized to Close, it was noted that the apology itself was lifted from a 2010 post on Yahoo Answers, so he plagiarized an apology after he plagiarized the guy's film. LeBouf's comic books were later found to have been plagiarized from Benoit Duderay's The Little Girl and the Cigarette and Charles Bukowski's Assault. Eventually, LeBouf's plagiarism was so prevalent that Time Magazine ran a piece entitled A Brief History of Shia LeBouf Copying the Works of Others, citing no less than 14 examples. According to Rabbi Abraham Yosef, son of the late Rabbi Ovedia Yosef, it is acceptable under Jewish law to plagiarize academic papers. If a student takes someone else's paper, copies it, and changes the wording in an attempt to conceal the plagiarism, Jewish law not only permits it, but the plagiarist would be doing the mitzvah of charity. Professor Lewis, Lewis Wolpert, a British developmental biologist who was born into a South African family, Jewish family, apologized after it was found 
that more than 20 passages in his 2011 book on aging had been lifted from Wikipedia, academic websites, and other online sources. He also apologized for having plagiarized other online sources for another unpublished book and said, after a gap of maybe weeks or sometimes months, I simply did not recall that I had not written these passages myself. In short, anyone who continues to claim the protocols is a forgery because parts of it were plagiarized might as well have a tattoo branded on their forehead. There are two choices, cretin or liar. And these are the words of our author. And he continues by saying, there is no denying that parts of the protocols were plagiarized, and the plagiarism is strikingly obvious, exactly as if the writer had intended it to be found. For example, Jolie's first dialogue, the words of Machiavelli, and these, this is the same, um, the same portion of Jolie's dialogue and the protocols that I had quoted earlier this evening in the comparison proving that even though some of the language was very similar, the ideas were developed independently. This is the same passage, but the starting and stopping points are slightly different. For example, Jolie's first dialogue says, bad instincts among men are more powerful than the good ones. Man has more enthusiasm for evil than good. Fear and force have more control over him than reason. All men aspire to domination, and there is none who would not be an oppressor if he could. All, or almost all, are ready to sacrifice the rights of others for their own interests. What restrains the devouring animals that one calls men? At the origin of society, there was brutal and unchecked force. Later, it was the law, that is to say, for still, ruled by forms. You have consulted all the sources of history. Everywhere, force appears before rights. Political liberty is only a relative idea. The necessity to live is what dominates the states as well as individuals. And then, from Protocol 1. It must be noted that men with bad instincts are more in number than the good, and therefore the best results in governing them are attained by violence and terrorization, and not by academic discussions. Every man aims at power. Everyone would like to become a dictator if only he could, and rare indeed are the men who would not be willing to sacrifice the welfare of all for the sake of securing their own welfare. What has restrained the beasts of prey who are called men? What has served their guidance hitherto? In the beginning, to the structure of society, they were subjected to brutal and blind force, afterwards to law, which is the same force, only disguised. I draw the conclusion that by the law of nature, right lies in force. Freedom is... Political freedom is an idea but not a fact, and some of those little differences arise from translation. Only the most diehard coincidence theorist would claim that the similarities are merely coincidental. And we do not claim that the similarities are coincidental, but when you read past the point that was quoted here, you'll see that the ideas 
were implemented differently and developed along different lines so that the effect and the objective of what was being said is not really the same. So the protocols, even though they use similar language and identical language in some places and similar ideas, were still created independently of Jolie and for a greater purpose. So, of course, this is the same passage which we had used as an example earlier, but we maintain that the ideas were nevertheless developed along different lines sufficiently to prove that the protocols were not only a mere forgery, and they were not merely, as Philip Graves would claim, a paraphrase. Back to our article, the protocols writers Use Jolie's metaphor from the Twelfth Dialogue about the hundred arms or hands of the god Vishnu in Protocol Numbers 12 and 17. And in the Thirteenth Dialogue, Jolie's Machiavelli is discussing how he would deal with secret societies. Those that could be infiltrated would be used as a useful channel of information and a means to influence affairs because the underground world of secret societies is filled with empty heads who can take directions and represent a force that can be put in motion. Referring to those empty-headed secret society members, the fictional Machiavelli says, these tigers have the souls of sheep. They are airheads. Protocol number 15, referring to the goyim in the Masonic lodges, says, these tigers, in appearance, have the souls of sheep, and the wind blows freely through their heads. However, if paragraphs where the plagiarism is strikingly obvious are taken out, that still leaves about 95% of the protocols. Now, that's our author, and my own contention was that there would be at least 90% left. Another source, returning to the article, another source that's been plagiarized is a chapter of a book by Herman Gotcha. This is a, re a reference to Biarritz. But after allowing for that, along with copying where the paraphrasing is more creative, there is still much original material in the protocols rather than a simple plagiarism job. As the Jews love to pretend it is, it's mostly a superb blueprint for world conquest, but padded with some blindingly obvious plagiarism the purpose of which was to allow the Jews to cry forgery in the event of discovery. Thus, their blueprint for world domination could be documented and could exist in plain sight. Yet anyone who pointed out the reality would be denounced as an anti-Semite or a conspiracy theorist who was citing nothing more than a proven forgery, and he's using quotes around each word because, of course, he does not believe that they are proven to be a forgery. And he goes on to say, it's been suggested 
that Jolie himself plagiarized a previous document, but no one has been able to present any evidence for that. But Nesta Webster did present evidence that a lot of the ideas of the protocols are in the writings of many of the secret societies as well as in Jolie. So the protocols do seem to be a blueprint taken from the writings of many of the secret societies with the Machiavellian tendency toward government and a resentment towards liberalism which had been floating around political circles in Europe for 200 years. And Jolie is also a student of and a product of that very environment, being a Mason and a French bureaucrat and a French lawyer. It's been suggested that Jolie himself plagiarized the previous document, but no one has been able to present any evidence for that. The claim that Jolie plagiarized Jacob Vanetti cannot be substantiated and was correctly refuted by Ronald S. Green, and they link an article which I have not sought after. If Jolie and Gocha were employed by Jewry and working from some still undiscovered template it was also used to write the protocols. That would account for their books happening to be available at the right time. And Jolie was 1864, and Herman Goetz's Theoretz was 1868. However, it doesn't explain why the conspirators would wait a quarter of a century to write the protocols after Jolie's dialogue was published in 1864, and we have seen that the earliest known possession of the protocols, I believe, was 1895, as explained by Nesta Webster. That's the earliest known possession of it. That doesn't mean that they were written in 1895. And in that case, if Jolie or Gauchet departed too far from the template, one of the protocol's writers would still need to plagiarize Jolie in order to make the plagiarized passages quite obvious. So they could have some newspaper expose the parallel passages and the so-called forgery. There's no evidence that Jolie or Gocha were agents of Jewry, and there is really no need to postulate a conspiracy to account for the existence of Jolie's and Gocha's books. The best account of events is simply that the conspirators were aware of both books at the time they made the decision to plagiarize, and they chose to take advantage of them. Now, Jolie was a French lawyer and a mason. He worked for 10 years for the French government in the Department of State in Paris. Likewise, Gaucher, Herman Gaucher, was allegedly only a postal worker, but he was also employed by Prussian secret police as a writer, as a spy, as an agent provocateur, and as a forger of letters. He wrote several books of a political nature, 
Both men were, were within the purview of the Masonic lodges and secret societies of the time, and their writings reflect the literature of those secret societies. None of this can merely be coincidental, but we will continue with our article. I'm sorry, my throat's getting really dry. Protocols deniers and anti-Gentile Jewish supremacists have made several other clumsy attempts at refutation, of which the most recent features a rehash of earlier claims that Matthew Golovinsky was the forger. It turns out, and this claim dates back to Catherine Rodziwill and Count Dusheva, it turns out that their Golovinsky conspiracy theory would require a suspension of the laws of causality, a willingness to see evidence where none exists, and a deliberate avoidance of the preponderance of evidence that refutes it, which makes it exactly the same as the official 9-11 conspiracy theory. Absolute nonsense. But to see the Golovinsky gambit in its proper context, we should first look into the program described in the protocols and see how it corresponds with future events, meaning events future to the time when the protocols were first discovered, and Jewish behavior. That investigation yields some clues as to when and how the grand conspiracy was born, who is behind it, and what it involves. We can then evaluate the Jews' conspiracy theories regarding the protocol's creation and compare with anti-Semitic accounts of how the work was apparently discovered, brought to Russia, and published pro- and anti-Gentile alike mostly agreed that the protocols originated in Paris and was brought to Russia, but the character of witnesses who testify in defense of the Jews and the sheer ineptness of their claims provides evidence of deceit on the part of the anti-Gentile propagandists. Amusingly, the Jews' star witness for their assertion that the protocols is a forgery turns out to be a convicted forger, fraudster, blackmailer, briber, and jailbird, who had been married to a German and had to spend two hours at Ellis Island persuading, and most likely bribing, the authorities to let her into the U.S. 23 days after the U.S. declared war against Germany in 1917 by telling them a bizarre story about having a dead double who was the forger and about having a husband who was a German engineer who gave up his career to become an importer and gave up his German citizenship to become a Swede. Now, of course, this is in reference to Catherine Rodziwill, who is rather amusingly unnamed here. The author won't name her. From 1921 to 1935, Jewry continued to channel their physically impossible conspiracy theory through this proven fraudster after her antics had been thoroughly exposed, for instance, in the New York Times. 
It is conceivable that Jewish leaders were incapable of seeing through her deception throughout that time. Rather, like supporters of the war in Iraq were supposed to be too foolish to know that a documentary evidence of Saddam trying to obtain uranium yellow cake from Niger was a forgery long after it had already been pointed out by those of a more rational and honest persuasion. It could hardly get better than that. And throughout this article, they make references to more recent treachery on the part of the Jews, which does indeed show the degree of Jewish control over our society in fulfillment of the plan in the protocols. And they say, Protocol 12 tells of a plan to control the press. Not a single announcement will reach the public without our control. Even now, this is already being attained by us inasmuch as all news items are received by a few agencies in whose offices they are focused from all parts of the world. These agencies will then be already entirely ours and will give publicity only to what we dictate to them. And we see that all the time in today's society. All our newspapers will be of all possible complexions, aristocratic, republican, revolutionary, even anarchical, for so long, of course, as the Constitution exists. Like the Indian idol Vishnu, they will have a hundred hands, and every one of them will have a finger on any one of the public opinions as required, as we see that the Jews always tend to gain control of the opposition. When a pulse quickens, these hands will lead opinion in the direction of our aims. For an excited patient loses all power of judgment and yields easily to suggestion. Those fools who think they are repeating the opinion of a newspaper of their own camp will, will be repeating our opinion or any opinion that seems desirable for us. In the vain belief that they are following the organ of their party, they will in fact follow the flag which we hang out for them. In March 1893, the New York Times wrote, owing to the leading position of the Jews in the money markets of Europe, for some time, I'm sorry, for some, that's taking honesty too far. In 1896, Adolf Ox, of Jewish descent, acquired the New York Times. Nowadays, the Jews themselves love to remind everyone about all the Jews in the American media. The situation is the same in Britain. For example, where the Jews admit they were already a major factor in British journalism by the middle of the 19th century. Now, at this point, the article, The Protocols of Jolie, provides a long list of Jews in control of Western media, a list which is, or which should be, well known to our listeners, and is also posted somewhere at Christiania.org. So we will not repeat it here. Then, after a conversation about certain media magnates imagined to be Jewish, we will resume with the article where it says, it would be the easiest thing in the world to compile a load of fantastic, unreferenced claims from conspiratorially 
minded websites and use them to quote unquote prove that some group such as the Vatican, the Nazis, the Islamists, the lizards or whatever was secretly running the world. And and all of those conspiracies are found at Alex Jones, David Icke, and the websites of several other clowns. But that would be pointless. The Internet contains some great information that cannot be found in daily newspapers or local bookstores and is thereby irreplaceable as a superb tool for self-education. The more nonsense that is put online, the worse the signal-to-noise ratio on the Internet and the less valuable it becomes. The information on this page, meaning the Protocols of Jolie article, which will be linked with this podcast, is based on mainstream sources and verifiable facts. And from here, the Protocols of Jolie article provides a long list of statements from the Protocols and modern circumstances which demonstrate that the objectives of the Protocols have indeed been fulfilled, something which we plan to do ourselves in the year to come as we actually present the Protocols. If the Protocols had their origin with certain of the Jewish Rothschilds is also one of the objectives of this article. It then asserts the Rothschilds are Talmudists. It's the same culprits, but this time they've got their tentacles spread around the banks the major political parties, the mainstream media, and the educational institutions, like secondary cancer tumors threatening major organs. And then, after offering some evidence and some modern parallels, illustrating the compatibility of the Rothschild agenda to the protocols, it goes on to say, the Jewish protocols writer, certainly exhibits as one of the avaricious Rothschild school who are obsessed with getting all the gold in their hands, who are also racist Talmudic supremacists who view the goyim as the equivalent of cattle. And the protocols writer is being rather disingenuous in boasting about his people being behind the French Revolution because progressive Jews such as Moses Mendelssohn or Haim Solomon would have had no truck with the Rothschild Talmudic program. Now, I, I would not... Um, I don't understand how they call Haim Solomon a progressive Jew, but that's okay. I also don't understand how they can ignore the obvious Jewish role in the French Revolution, except to say that Nesta Webster, she also didn't understand it. She didn't understand Jewish involvement in European politics until the 1820s, where she admits that from that time, they are very visible, not only in politics, but in all of the secret societies. We had already postulated that Jews were 
only acting behind the scenes before that because it was not neat for them to act overtly until after they had acquired their emancipation, which was the result of, one of the results of, the French Revolution. So, qui bono? Who benefits? Our author goes on to say, before investigating the timeline of how the protocols was brought to Russia and published, and refuting specific claims about the protocols being anachrona forgery, it is useful to consider how the Rothschild program emerged out of the earlier hatred and mischief of the Talmudic bigots and developed into contemporary events such as Israel's staging of 9-11, and there's certainly on the money there, the idea that there was an already pre-existing program for world conquest prior to the French Revolution, that Meyer Amschel Rothschild was in charge, and that Rothschild drew up the plans for the Illuminati, perhaps as early as 1770, and then set up Weishaupt, a crypto-Jew, as his front in 1776, might sound good, but isn't supported by the facts, and it portrays the conspirators as almost superhuman and much cleverer than they actually were. The Talmudists certainly wanted to rule the world, but they didn't have a credible strategy in the 1700s. I would say that they did, that it's buried in the, um, in the language of the writings of Maimonides and other mystical Jews collectively, and, and that it just wasn't made known to the Goyim until forms such as the protocols had been had had taken shape as mentioned above the evidence points to the credible program for world domination crystallizing at the birth of zionism with its machiavellian ideas such as control of the press plagiarized from jolie there is no evidence that weishaupt was a crypto jew was secretly a Rothschild front, or was the sort of person who would happily take orders from others. A more economical theory fits, that fits the facts is that Weishaupt's Illuminati was his own invention, and that's not true, as we see that Baron von Niga actually had a great hand in the documents of the Illuminati and its structure. Rothschild did not become aware of the Illuminati until later, and then decided to exploit it for his own ends, after he learned how a prince had become extremely wealthy and decided to use the same system to create his own dynasty. Now, with that, we must agree to a point, because the protocols themselves admit that the secret societies already existed, but the authors of the protocols professed that they would infiltrate and use those secret societies for their own means. So we can't, what we must agree to a great extent with what our author is saying here. And he goes on to say, the Illuminati didn't survive, but the Rothschild conspiracy emerged out of it. 
Rothschild plagiarized Weishaupt's strategies of destroying Christianity and the nation-state, and unfortunately, the conspiracy has not only survived to this day, but has enjoyed unparalleled success. One of the Illuminati members was Prince Charles of Hesse-Kassel, or Karl von Hessen-Kassel in German. William I, a letter of Hesse, became William Landgrave of Hesse-Kassel upon the death of his father on October 31st, 1785. Charles was William's younger brother. Meyer Amschel Rothschild, as a dealer in coins, became court agent to William of Hesse-Hanau in 1769. William, described by Frederick Morton's The Rothschilds as Europe's most blue and cold-blooded loan shark, entrusted part of his fortune to Meyer Amschel Rothschild as he fled Napoleon in 1806. That's one version of the story, but either way, within a few years, Nathan Rothschild received at least 550,000 pounds of William's fortune and used it to speculate on his own account as described above, and we skipped over that part. The town of Hanau is located 25 kilometers east of Frankfurt on Main, Frankfurt on the Main River near Barnes. Castle is 190 kilometers north of Hanau. Thus, as early as 1769, Rothschild had a connection with the royal family of Hesse, at least one of whom went on to become an Illuminati member. Later, several acquaintances of Rothschild's were Illuminati members. However, since we are not assuming that Rothschild was behind the French Revolution, and I wouldn't either, but certainly Jews were, and there were more influential Jews than just the Rothschilds at the time, many more. We do not need to postulate that Meyer Rothschild financed and controlled Weishaupt, or that Rothschild found out about the Illuminati when it was a secret society that did not admit Jews as members. Prior to July 20th, 1785, when Illuminati emissary Johann Jacob Lons was struck with lightning and killed at Regensburg, formerly known as Radisbon, and the Bavarian government subsequently published details of the Illuminati conspiracy after police discovered papers documenting the Illuminati's plans for internal revolution hidden in Lanz's clothes, and the conspiracy was confirmed by further documents found in raids on the homes of Illuminati members. Rothschild might have learned about the Illuminati prior to 1785, but there is no need to presume that he was aware of it until people such as Robeson and Baruel had published exposés. So this is the premise of the Protocols of Jolie, but it cannot be said that the Rothschilds are the sole beneficiaries of the plan of the Protocols or of the emerging world Jewish supremacism, but the article does at great length demonstrate that Jews collectively have been the sole beneficiaries of this system to subvert Christendom, which has been decried a forgery for a hundred years now, but all the while has been executed in full
before our very eyes. It also shows at length that all attempts to somehow discredit the protocols were themselves fraudulent and in a few ways which we ourselves did not consider. The fault of the protocols of Jolie writers, in my opinion, is that they are putting the Rothschilds before the Jews rather than the Jews before the Rothschilds. The protocols originated in the secret societies, and apparently the Rothschilds were their most successful adherents. However, many other Jewish families had been in their league, and they could not have done it all by themselves. The protocols are real, and the deception on the part of world Jewry to subvert and destroy Christendom has been executed in plain sight. The protocols are successful in that their authors have successfully done what they said they would do, use the Masonic Lodges and secret societies as their dupes to accomplish what they have done. We see plainly, we see that plainly in all of the lodges and civic organizations of today. Without a doubt, we see the CFR or, or, or one media outlet or, or one school or church outlet come out with some anti-Christian agenda and all the others immediately fall in line and follow through with the same agenda. That's not a mistake. That proves that there's some puppet master behind the scenes. Next week, before beginning a lengthy discussion of the protocols themselves, we shall explore the role of Henry Ford in this travesty of the protocols of Satan. I will be here tomorrow afternoon with Sven Longshanks, and Sven has a discussion on King Alfred, the Saxon Führer. I will be joining him in that. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening, and good night.